the big project that I have at the moment is a ERC project on processes, actually called a process ontology for contemporary biology. And about the first half of what I'll talk about will be uh, essentially about that. I'll be uh, talking about why I think there's some connection between processes and biology, if that's not obvious. And then as this 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 um, occasion made me think about um, the relation of this project to powers. I think I'm a kind of long-standing powers fellow traveler, and I think I've occasionally even said I like powers or uh, something, things like powers, but I've never really, really, I think, written anything much about what I actually mean or why I like them or anything. So I thought I would try and say something about how powers would relate to this process project. So um, as I was just saying, the first half of the talk is stuff I've at least been saying for um, a little while, and the second half may be a bit half-baked. So there may be, I hope there won't be, the transition won't be too dramatic. So here's an overview. The first starting point, I wanted to say something about why processes, and I guess the, the, the contrast between thinking in terms of processes and thinking in terms of things, um, and just very briefly, I won't really be very strong about this, whether one should be um, a thing process monist or dualist and live with both. Uh, then I'll talk about the um, process ontology for biology, a few obvious things. I think life is basically a hierarchy of processes. And and I will suggest, obviously, I'm going to come down on more on the process than the thing side, um, that what we tend to describe as biological things, um, we should better think of as temporal parts of processes. And one of the important points about this is that when one tries to understand biological processes, one of the things one is constantly looking at is the way that um, further processes or internal parts of processes stabilize um, aspects of biological processes in ways that, of course, are very functional in terms of survival, reproduction, those familiar things, but also can be perhaps we say dysfunctional in terms of leading us astray ontologically in encouraging us to, to think of biological entities as things when we should better think of them as processes. Then I come to the second part, question what are powers, some general metaphysical questions. Um, I shall have a couple of points where I will say refer to the things I've learned from Anna's recent work and um, ways where I guess at least I am yet not quite persuaded, and then move on to an idea of powerful processes as um, a way of perhaps providing a, a very general ontology and look at some of the advantages and drawbacks of such a thing. So, um, moving on. Um, I'm always amazed how similar Greek philosophers look to one another. Um, <laughs> I imagine they could easily have got confused. Um, obviously, so this is a very brief bit of history, as I'm sure you all know, questions about processes versus things or substances go back a very long way and at least in terms of ways of thinking about science which is where I come at all this 
in a way, the dominant view has been, I think, a more Democritian view um, deriving from, I guess, in some way, well, and again, I'm, I'm not a historian, so uh, when I say deriving from, I realize there's all kinds of things you could worry about here, but at least often traced back to Greek atomism. But of course, there is also uh, the famous Greek you know, early processualists, um, Heraclitus with all his rivers that he couldn't step into and so on, um, who I guess represents another tradition and you know more more long-term committed processists will trace um, a history but I guess we'll always admit it's a somewhat subordinate history through philosophy of process people I mean I guess uh, there are there are some contentious cases uh, some people like to claim say Leibniz as a big process philosophy, less contentious the, the American pragmatists later on. But but I, I the only actually other historical moment I'm just going to refer to again in a very um, broad brush, not very scholarly way, um, is because the scientific revolution and uh, people like Boyle and Locke who arguably established that the substance-based atomist way of thinking was the way to go in a properly scientific worldview. And it's a curious thing, I think, in the sense that I'm not quite sure that scientists believe this, but I think the vast majority of philosophers who don't think too much about it uh, seem to me are still very much in this kind of Lockean, Boylean sort of world of just rather fuzzy atoms bumping into one another in the void. I mean, it became a bit fuzzy, obviously, a hundred years ago, but essentially there's still something very similar, very atomistic and ultimately very thing-based. Okay, that's the history. Um, so now a little bit more serious thought about what the difference is. Now, one, one immediate response I often get when I start talking about this is say, well, surely everything's a process. Uh, and of course, I guess that's, I think, is a fairly uninteresting um, claim if it just means everything changes. So I guess I, maybe it wasn't the best quote from Heraclitus I had there. <laughs> but clearly, I think, you know, process ontologists, and I guess one of the leading recent um, process ontologist who has the rare and wonderful um, advantage in this this category of being somebody clear and intelligible. Um, one of the reasons I think that uh, people get put off becoming interested in process ontology is it tends to mean you have to read Whitehead, who is anything but clear and straightforwardly intelligible. I did one of the things I've discovered recently is that there are a huge number of whitehead enthusiasts out there who come and uh, introduce themselves when I say I'm interested in processes. And I'm very pleased to talk to them, but slightly less enthusiastic about reading whitehead. But I'm trying. But anyhow, Russia is much clearer, and I guess I rather like this kind of statement because in a certain way, as I've perhaps explained, enduring things are never more than patterns of stability in a sea of process is actually exactly how I tend to think uh, about biology. And I guess the other thing, which again I think is very appropriate to the way I think for process philosophy, what a thing is consists in what it does. Um, but particularly I like the first quote. Now I'm not going to try and defend here 
I should say, a universal process ontology. I'm not absolutely sure if I want to do that um, in the end, but I'm not going to try and do it today. only want to argue that at least in thinking about biology, this is a very useful framework. Uh, and, and I'm not quite sure that this is a view of process which I found useful, and I'm not quite sure whether I still want to defend it. But at any rate, a working idea is that by process, I mean something, and I, I put that in bold just as a sort of reminder to myself to apologize for the fact that I'm sure I shall endlessly talk about things and some things and any things and everything. And, and I guess this, it's at least a thought that it may be very difficult for us to think in terms of processes. Perhaps that's why Whitehead is so hard to read and understand. But, but I think it's, there's a serious issue here that, um, it may be that reification is something quite psychologically deep that, uh, or possibly linguistically deep, but at any rate, that, that it's very hard to avoid thing talk and possibly there's more, uh, this does more philosophical work than is often, uh, very clear. But anyway, sorry, this was, I, I haven't spoken about the actual And the idea that there are certainly an obvious statement about biological entities, systems, is that their continuation, their, their persistence is constantly dependent on doing things. Uh, and lots of things are mentioned. Some of the things I take it that's fairly obvious. You know, we metabolize, we undergo all these processes that keep us stably in thermodynamic disequilibrium with our environments in organized sorts of ways. Okay, so um, here's just a kind of simple kind of paradigm I like to use when I'm tempted to think that so that this is where the sort of idea that gives me this this notion of, of sustaining itself by changing it's easy to imagine I suppose a mountain that does absolutely nothing for a period of time now one could get into debates about whether it has to you know the atoms and micro components are very busily doing something to keep it together uh, I will perhaps mention that again but but one can imagine that they didn't they could be just a big pile of billiard balls all stuck there in sort of completely stable relations to one another, uh, or at least so it seems. Uh, there's the the opposite example, the red spot on Jupiter, which is a an enormous sort of weather system, a kind of storm, and I guess we know it's been there for a few hundred years, maybe much longer, uh, and maintains pretty much its integrity as a result of very rapid motions of the parts as winds going round as little flanking winds and so on that hold it in place and so on um, but if it's if everything stopped moving it would all fall apart and that would be the end of it so it depends for its continuation on all kinds of changes just some further questions and again I, I coming back to this um, you know whether in some trivial way everything is a process so on some t time scale everything changes and I guess what I'm thinking is perhaps on some time scale everything depends on some sort of change for being the sort of thing it is so the mountain uh, looks very stable we hope if you're walking up it 
if you're interested in tectonics, then it's part of a process, and it wouldn't be the kind of mountain it was if it were not part of a very long tectonic process. And there's also, of course, the question about whether uh, dynamic behavior of the parts are required for it even to hold together. So that gives a thought that a thing or a process is really something that's just time scale relative, and one should just realize that everything's a thing and everything's a process. It just depends on your temporal interest. And to some degree, I think this is this is an important perspective on biology, because in biology, one of the interesting things is one has many different time scales, and part of the reason one can give the sort of explanations one can, can, which can often look mechanistic in terms of interactions between fixed parts, is for, from the point of view of one process, the parts that you identify are stable at the time scale of that process. So that a lot of, a lot of the way we understand um, biological systems and their activities is in terms of the interaction between different time scales. Another question is that people often ask, well, an objection I often hear when I even start talking about these things is um, ultimately something has to undergo a process for there to be a process. So you couldn't have a complete ontology of processes. There must be some things that, that undergo them. Now, it seems to me I just don't really understand that. Um, it seems to me could perfectly well be processes all the way down. And indeed, one reason for thinking that is it looks as if um, at least my limited understanding of fundamental physics looks much more like processes than um, things. At any rate, I don't much mind because, I mean, it seems to me, at least philosophically, it's an open question whether there is a fundamental anything or whether there may be lots of may go on down forever, tortoises all the way down. So I'm not terribly impressed by that, but I mention it because it seems to be a very common um, question that I'm asked when I talk about this. And finally, something I'm not going to really go into, but I guess I should mention, is of course there are many different kinds of processes. A lot of the processes that I'm interested in in biology have a kind of um, cyclical quality. I say they sustain things by sort of going round and round, um, as one might think, for example, of a lot of metabolic processes. But they're also one-directional processes that keep changing all the time. And the most obvious example here is evolution. So, again, I'm not going to talk about evolution, but just a sort of reminder to myself not to get stuck into thinking about one particular kind of process. So, at any rate, biology, I should say, and this is, as opposed to the claim that everything is all process, biology, it seems to me, is all process, and we have a massive range of timescales, so evolution uh, up to, say, eons, um, development, which takes something from minutes to decades, uh, and then there's a crucial point, and I guess this is not really relevant to what I'll talk about today, but just uh, again, a little aside, probably because it came from the slide and I was talking about something different, but I think that evolution is that the elements of evolution, I believe, are developmental systems or cycles, so evolution is a process, the components of which are processes. Um, then all kinds of metabolic processes of many different rates, usually very rapid. And again, I, just as a repeat, because this is a very central idea. So I think 
all the, the entities that we tend to think of, species in terms of evolution, organisms in terms of development, uh, genes, metabolites in terms of met 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 metabolism or something of that sort, are parts of these processes stabilized over relevant timescales. So I guess to take a very obvious instance that I won't talk about further, you know, species, there's a major uh, claim in, in recent, or not fairly recent philosophy of biology that we should think of species as individuals of some kind, but clearly they are individuals that exist in this much longer process of evolution and generally quite frequently the discussion of them is in terms of reproductive or possibly ecological interactions that stabilize to some degree the constitution of the species at a particular time. So let me just and, and um, just just to bring it to something very intuitively familiar uh, in the light of that how should we think about ourselves uh, what is a human and I think that generally if you ask this people think of you know something like a grown-up human of some kind I like this picture because it has like many biological pictures you get the prey item included in the picture and of course in the interests I must of there's a, another type of human also with an item of prey. There's a um, the sort of thing that might come to mind, possibly, possibly not exactly like that. If you think of an example, you could imagine these are the illustrations in a natural history book, a kind of guide to the mammals of North America, and you might see a picture something like that. But of course, that's very strange in a way, because surely, and unfortunately it has such nice pictures, surely we should think of a human more like that, because humans are only, you know, have this particular, you know, the examples I just gave are a frozen moment of um, a cycle. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that George W. Bush was once a baby, but I'm sure he was. Uh, and once I guess he was a zygote. Uh, and of course, it's a process that spins off other processes. And, and so it's, it, this is, of course, one of the points is this is much harder to represent. It's actually, I have um, a nice project going on with a, a very talented um, artist who is trying to draw biological things and just trying to draw four-dimensional representations. But on the whole, this is this is much harder than than the kind of actual snapshots that one tends to see, the little you know thin time slices that we often see representing biological things. So what kind of process is a human? And here I want to move into some some more biological um, subtlety a little bit. So I think that if you ask people a lot of the time when you think about this kind of process, they will tend to have a story like this. There's a little, you know, George Bush zygote and it, the cells keep dividing and differentiating and eventually you get a total grown-up George Bush. Grown-up George Bush, I don't know. Maybe. But um, an adult George Bush. And one of the things this has is it has a nice, in, in, in a standard version of this picture, it has a nice account of what's common to all the George Bush cells that make up the George Bush. That is that they all have more or less the same 
genome. So I think I, I call this the monogenomic differentiated cell lineage conception. Very catchy term, um, but I think it captures something that is fairly intuitive to the uh, scientifically literate. And so one of the first things I want to say is this is quite mistaken. And one reason is that human bodies are full of lots of different genomes. This is kind of perhaps also a slight anti-essentialist move, but that's just not what I'm emphasizing today. So one thing, um, and, I, and I'll come back to this, I think it's quite mistaken to say, or at least hugely misleading to say, that all the cells in a human body have the same genome. Now, of course, again, very familiar philosophical point, same F is highly problematic. Same in what respect? Well, there's one respect in which in the MDCL, at least, most of the genome, most of the cells have more or less the same genome. They have more or less the same sequence. But that's a very abstract feature of the genome. And in many other respects, genomes change all the time. Those of you who have some familiar with, familiarity with epigenetics will be aware that one of the ways they change is all kinds of bits of other stuff stick onto them. This changes the shape of the genome in ways that determine which bits of the genome get expressed. So fundamentally changing its biologically important properties. So there's a sense in which it's you know, the same thing throughout, but it's a very limited sense and a sense that is very limited in terms of providing an understanding of what it does. So I want to say that even within the MDCL, there, there are multiple very different genomes. And it's hardly surprising, I guess, when you look at how different the cells are, that they should have different genomes. They just happen to have the same sequence. Now, there are also various kinds of natural or synthetic chimerism where other kinds of cells are introduced into it. Mean, so we do it a lot by transplants and blood transfusions and things. We put new genomes in. But it also happens naturally. But I won't, I won't go into a great deal of these. One, but one of the most interesting cases are actual organisms that, that can, including sometimes humans, that originate from two fused um, zygotes. And the, the most fascinating, one of the fascinating things is very occasionally there are cases of women being told that they don't, their children weren't really theirs because the child has um, a different genome, which um, has been traced on occasion to the fact that the mother is this kind of um, chimera. child got the wrong, a different bit of the genome from the bit that was tested in the mother. It's rather a tragic story, actually. But there are, um, as I say, we do this artificially, um, and in some species this is quite common. And then the thing that I'd be most interested in, symbiosis, the fact that mostly we're not made of human cells anyway, um, at least if you count, 90% of the cells in the human body are uh, symbiotic microbes, and in fact 99% of the genes in the human body live in these, or 98 maybe, uh, live in these symbiotic microbes. So actually we're this very complex mixture of very different kinds of cells with very different kinds of genomes in them. And this is absolutely typical of living systems. See, most living systems, and this is my preferred account of what a biological individual 
or an organism is, most of existence, metabolically integrated sets of genetic, evolutionary, lineage segments. So all the microbes, all the different, um, and, and of course, I, I tend to talk more about the microbes that kind of come in from outside and contribute to the system. Absolutely essential contributions. Of course, there are also ones that are trapped inside, like the mitochondria, which are now obligate parts of our living systems, but once were free-living um, bacteria and have their own separate lineages from our, um, our MDCLs. Okay. Now here's a here's a thesis that I will um, that I think is um, uh, I, I will return to and uh, allude to again. I probably won't persuade you of this here, but one of the things that I find I think is most interesting to me about this processual perspective is that it turns out that the division of the biological world into processes is actually underdetermined. The complexity of the way these different systems, these different lineages interact and depend on one another is such that there are potentially multiple ways of dividing the world up into different, the living world up into different processes. And I guess I will give some sense of this, first of all, by just um, saying something about the universality of this integration. So just a few examples. Here's one that I, I always like talking about cows. Sorry, anybody's heard me talk about cows before. But um, I, I, I guess every now and again I like to do a sort of um, quasi-Dawkinsian kind of um, notion that really uh, seeing everything in terms of microbes. And... The, from the microbes' point of view, a cow is a really interesting and brilliant object because, so suppose it microbes basically form systems that metabolize just about anything that's got any free energy in it. And one of the most common and actually rather challenging sources of free energy is cellulose, um, as for example found in fields of grass. Uh, so. If you're a microbe, it seems you have two problems there. Ideally, you would like to, to have a sequential bit of chemistry, do one lot of stuff and then do another. And the other big problem you have is when you're a bunch of microbes that have metabolized a bit of grass, then you're all liable to die because you've metabolized all the grass. So the solution to both of these problems is a cow. So a cow is basically a bunch of vats connected by tubing uh, that contain different fermenters um, and when you've finished fermenting a bit of cellulose then you've got a primitive locomotive system that takes you on to another patch of grass. So this I think is a very nice case of the way all the various different you know these, these different complex set of, of different biological entities interacts to sustain itself and then of course make new cows, new microbes and all the rest of it. Of course, the, the plants themselves um, are actually just the sun-catching system for um, hugely complex subterranean systems of fungi and bacteria um, that actually even live inside the roots and the tendrils or the, um, come out into the soil and interact with bacteria. Uh, they, the bacteria, the, sorry, the fungi themselves occasionally appear 
and distribute themselves. They have little spore distribution devices, some of which are delicious, like that one. And if you're very lucky, you can find fungi that live on fungi, like these ones. And just so that to make, remind you that everything is possible, you even can get free living cells, these pelagic microbes. I guess the big brown ones are probably um, eukaryotic. I'm not quite sure what these were. But actually, even when they're not living in part of a, a big MDCL, uh, most um, microbes like to live in things like that. Multi-species biofilms where very complex um, systems of microbes interact with one another, complex division of labor to provide a sustainable system that can continue for a long time. Basically, just about any damp surface will eventually accumulate something like that, um, you know, from drinking water valves to slippery rocks, catheters, whatever. They usually have something like this living on them. Okay, so I guess my, my point here is just that these system, these biological processes, cell lineages of cells, actually are massively complexly interconnected. And the processes that maintain them, enable them to reproduce themselves, are enormously complex and interdependent. So this is, um, I think, the first time in my philosophical career that I've used subscripts. Uh, but it had to come eventually. So I thought, okay, so here I want to distinguish organism 1 and organism 2. And so the MDCL is an example of an organism 1, i.e. just a lineage of cells, um, which of course can be just microbes dividing and reproducing themselves that, or they can be much more complex multicellular ones, versus Organism 2, which is the kind of thing I've been talking about, the kinds of systems that actually interact in the world and survive and maintain themselves and enable their component parts to reproduce. And so what I want to say now, now in a nice philosophical sounding way with subscripts is that actual living systems involve these complexly intertwined interactions between many organisms one and it's easy enough to define the boundaries of organisms one but very hard to define the boundaries of organisms two which i think are the real ones and to a considerable degree doing so is something we do in a interest relative way however i think these are what we generally mean when we refer to organisms and if i if i were talking about humans i would now Go on to say it's not that it's actually difficult to distinguish us and all our microbes from somebody else and different people and their microbes. I actually think that the problem with people is that we actually forget what social animals we are and that actually we should often think of ourselves as parts of social groups. And modern Western individualism makes this very hard to do, but I guess one example, one, one very simple thought experiment is to think of the fissioning process that female humans sometimes go through and the rather bizarre way we think of this as, you know, some new organism appears um, with an act of, you know, kind of um, uh, fertilization of a cell when actually empirically what happens is, as I said, is very slow 
process of asymmetric fissioning um, and the two entities don't become fully independent until quite a long time after birth. And there we can see even in, in a much more familiar case, which uh, that, that is I guess fairly obvious that the boundaries is not obvious where you draw the boundaries. And I suppose the, the terrible debates we have over um, whether life begins here or there um, in the abortion context reflects that people at least do see that this is a difficult question, even if they sometimes come to funny conclusions about that. So generally, we, we static representations of time slices through these interconnected processes. And I think I've said all of that. Just that one shouldn't be too realistic about the way we do these divisions. And and I guess I think this is the final thing before I finally get on to powers. And and I guess I think this is, this is quite just another way of seeing the same thing. We, for many reasons, we want to represent these biological processes. One that I've been particularly concerned with is the genome. I've referred to this. Um, and here are some very different ways we can represent this thing. So I guess the most familiar is we reckon we have these strings of, of letters, which people seem to kind of fetishize quite a bit. Then we have the sort of chemical models that enable us to understand how this molecule works. And there is a, a little picture of some very important epigenetic processes. One thing about epigenetics is, uh, just to get a sense of it, the, the DNA in a human cell is about two meters long. The cell is about, it's a lot smaller than that, I can't remember exactly. <laughs> about 20 micrometers, I think, is about typically 20 to 100 micrometers. So the DNA is quite squashed up, and it's not randomly squashed up, and this is a nice picture of how it's rolled up down these round these little proteins with histones, and then they fold over and get more and more condensed, as the word is. Um, but because they're so folded up and condensed, actually only quite a small proportion is actually exposed to transcription machinery at any time. One of the ways of thinking of this epigenetics or all these processes is constantly changing the shape of this thing and changing what is therefore expressed. And so this is a kind of quasi-dynamic representation, at least it's representing as it goes along different condensation states so that it's a way of at least seeing some of the ways this thing can change. And here's a micrograph um, that gives you a different kind of more obvious um, crosscut through it. Um, and, and again, all I want to say here is that this is perfectly sensible. This is how we try and get different perspectives on these, and these things have particular functions. I mean, so for example, sequence is really good for comparing genomes. Um, it's a wonderful way of comparing genomes, identifying relationships, sometimes identifying function in terms of similarities between genomes of different organisms. Um, that's what it mostly does. This, of course, the chemical things gives a different kind of understanding. This is a much more specific kind of understanding. This is how, how we do science. We have these, these partial representations that enable us to understand certain things. There's just a curious thing, and I, and I would you know, rather speculatively venture this is one of the things we might try and avoid by doing more processual thinking, is the tendency to take these representations as a 
totality of some kind of thing or an essence of a kind of thing, as certainly has happened quite bizarrely with the gene sequence. I mean, it's a historical story of that, but it's a very specific representation of a very specific feature that is very far from being the whole story of these processes. Okay, powers. I'm sorry, it's taken me a long time to get that, but that's probably just as good because I may have less to say. Um, okay, so, so what I would like to do, as I say, is, is to come to, to present a, a broad ontology in terms of processes and powers that pertain to them, and I'll just give some ideas about this, I hope. And also in this context, raise at least some of the some fairly familiar questions about powers. And then I want to illustrate a little bit of this with some kind of relatively recent ideas from molecular and cell biology. So what is what we often think was a powerful thing, a thing with a power? Well, I want to say if things are stabilized processes, obviously that's the starting point for my thinking about their powers. So here's an example from the, from the um, from what I just considered the genome. <laughs> And the most familiar power of a genome is the power to code for a protein. So under some circumstances, having a particular nucleotide sequence explains the production of a certain protein. Now, there are, I'm only mentioning two little fractions of the circumstances uh, of, of the, the surrounding conditions that make this happen in a particular case. Now, one thing I want to look back at and say, well, how do we, how does, what stabilizes this particular feature of the genome that has this particular power? So we have a process of these genomes that in very complicated ways replicate themselves. They constantly have this feature. Well, it's kind of interesting that there are two radically different processes we can point to here. One, and, and, I'm not entirely sure how to how to fit this story together, but but one explanation of that, of course, is selection. That genomes that don't have uh, sequences that have this power, if the power is important, don't get reproduced. So um, they get negatively selected. So there's a big story which says why we have uh, within this very complex evolutionary process of genomes reproducing themselves via organisms. But we also have um, a quite different set of processes uh, that are internal to the particular cell, which are processes of editing and correcting and repairing genes to maintain a uh, functional sequence. Uh, there, are, there are some microbes that live quite nicely in power stations with their gene genomes being smashed up and you know, when I sort of second by second, minute by minute, um, and they of course have really impressive editing machinery. Of course it depends on having a number of copies of the genome, constantly the ability to compare them and stabilize them and so on. Uh, we we can't live in nuclear power stations because that part of our stabilization of the sequence is not so uh, developed. But um, but we certainly have a lot of, of editing machinery. Now, then another kind of question is how this, how this, what mediates this process. So if you just take a bit of DNA and putting it on the table, it's not going to produce a lot of proteins. Um, actually, the process is 
extraordinarily complex. Uh, and I just want to mention one nice bit of it. Um, so you're probably aware that actually there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between bits of sequence and proteins. There's actually many-to-many. -many. The bit that gets you from the one-many as opposed to the many-one part of it is a process, well, one of them, the most best known such process is alternative splicing. So genes in the sense of coding regions come with coding bits and non-coding bits and then in alternating and then these get sliced up first of all, the, the non-coding bits generally get sliced up, sliced out and then some of the coding bits may get sliced out and they reordered and shuffled about in, in various ways, uh, sometimes producing thousands of different variants from a single sequence. And there's a nice little thing that brings this about called the spliceosome. And I mention this particularly because you often see pictures like this, um, which makes the spliceosome look as if it's a thing that sits there and splices things. Um, actually, the spliceosome is in the most uncontroversial way the name of a process because a splice is actually comes about through the construction and disintegration of this object. Uh, obviously some of the parts maintain themselves and can be reused in, in a new spliceosome, but this is actually a better picture of what goes on, which is a, a sequence of assembly. And one way of explaining why this might happen is that what splicing happens depends on much larger aspects of the context, so that actually the production of, a, of, of an appropriate protein can be sensitive to a lot of what's going on in the cell around it. So that this process will certainly differ according to circumstances that may, if everything goes well, functionally produce um, an appropriate protein under the circumstances. So I guess the reason that this is a very nice example is, first of all, it shows the way that this simple causal relation the exercise of what I call this power involves all kinds of other processes going on around, but this is also functional in the sense that exactly what power is exercised by the genome is sensitive in an adaptive functional way to a lot of what else is going on around it in the cell by virtue of these other flexible processes that take place. Okay, so Though we locate the power in a particular thing, I want to say, so we locate this power in the genome, its exercise involves the concurrence of multiple processes spatially and temporally dispersed around the thing. So, some central questions. I thought I had some of those. So, okay. Oh, yes, here's a quote from Anna. <laughs> may, I'm sure others may have said something similar. Um, I just want to say a word about that. Um, can there be bare powers? I won't say anything much about that. I'll just mention it. But I do want to just talk about this a little bit. So, this is a quote, as I say, from um, a metaphysical bedrock of reality, or maybe it's a quote from somebody else. So, I guess here's, here's the problem, and, I, and maybe I will be able to set me straight here. So, I'm perfectly happy with the idea that fundamental physics might be about bare powers. I, I don't have a 
view one way or the other about this. Um, but I do have a very uh, a concern about eliminating higher level individuals. So trees, genomes, even possibly dominoes. I guess you probably some most of you here have heard about dominoes. <laughs> if they were just powers, they'd all be pushing one another over and never get started. Something like that. All of these things, uh, it seems to me, um, have their own powers. And since I think that, um, I mean, I think all kinds of strange things about emergence and downward causation, which I guess is a package that makes me um, uh, very resistant to saying anything other than either these things, you know, really are just powers uh, of their own. I mean, domino powers or tree powers. And I think that Anna and I agree that that doesn't make sense, right? That, that so since I don't see any way of reducing these to little powers, I think there has to be a lot else apart from, uh, I think we have to have individuals, but I think we just have individual processes. And, and I, I'm not going to discuss it. I'm very happy to have no other kinds of properties, um, I think, but I think something has to exhibit them. Now, of course, I may be in a bit of a curiously contradictory position here because because the division of the world into entities, I've said, is underdetermined, and I'm not sure what I want to say about that. Whether that is leaving, maybe maybe I'll just expose my by my kind of bare philosophical underbelly to um, at this point and see if I can defend it in some way. Okay, so. That that and and that that by the way is just a little digression, really, in terms of you know the kind of bigger philosophical questions that I want to, I need to think about. But as I say, this is very much work in process. In progress. But now I want to get back to biology and try and understand how we a little bit more about how we might think about powers to think about biological ontology. So I said, of course, living processes have lots of powers. Maintenance. I've a process depends on the exercise of many powers, internal and external. I've tried to illustrate that with the the genome and the spliceosome and all that. So the powers change over time. So obviously the process isn't equivalent to any particular set of powers. Um, I don't think there's an essential set, but I guess that's a point where we could argue. And here again, I think is is something where I'm not sure... Uh, but but I think I, I, to me it seems very important for biology that these powers aren't expressed deterministically, even given particular conditions, uh, they may or may not be expressed. Uh, and then I, I guess a um, somewhat related point: the powers that actually a process has depends on the context on which it's happening. This may be a way of defending my soft underbelly because in a certain way I think neither the powers nor the processes are fully determined by nature. And I'll, I'll um, try and explain that. First of all, the indeterministic bit. This is just an obvious example everybody thinks of. I just mention it because it seemed to me to be right, but um, I'm happy to argue about that. But here's an example from biology that seems to me to be a very interesting one at any rate. And here I'm my second quote of Anna. So the reason why the pill causes thrombosis in one out of a thousand women is the physical state of the type of organism which that one woman has is the 
only type that satisfies the requisite conditions for the pill to cause thrombosis. Now this, I take it, I mean, without me sounding dismissive, is quite a common thought, that when we talk about things that don't go in the typical way, that's because the circumstances are uh, different. Now, and, and then, but this has got a particular force to the expression of this only, and, and, and I guess seems to me to express, if I'm right, a rather robust deterministic view of how these powers express themselves. Here's, here's my example, which seems to me not to go very much this way, if you can see. So proteins, I, I guess, I don't know if you know all the basic story, we, you know this story, there are bits of genes, they, they produce sequences of amino acids, and these amino acids fold themselves up into shapes that thereby serve functions like bits of Lego. And people once thought that when they first started looking at this, just stuck the sequence into the water, it will spring into the right shape, uh, kind of falling down uh, an energy gradient. Turns out that most proteins don't do this, and actually the process is extremely complicated. Proteins often misfold, which some of you may be familiar with in, in the um, discussion of prions that um, came, came up into public consciousness with the mad cow disease, prion disease, uh, but is also uh, misfolding, not prions, is also very important in many disease states, most notably probably Alzheimer's. There are many different conditions for proper folding, and there are special proteins called chaperones that um, help with this, and, and this is just a kind of map of the energy gradient. And the point you can see is there are lots of local minima, um, and at the bottom of the most prominent minima, you find various things like um, misfolded states, partially folded states, they say amorphous aggregates, which are actually very important in disease states, um, and so on. And actually amyloid fibrils, which are very important in things like Alzheimer's. The Chaperones are important in taking the flow of these things down the right into the right energy bucket, uh, as it were. They're also, interestingly, random the Brownian motion in the cell is important for shaking things out of these little minor energy uh, minima. So there's a rattle it a bit to get it to go down to the bottom of the bucket. It gets stuck on the side. Um, but all of these things. Uh, stochastic processes that often get you the wrong result. Now, of course, we don't, the reason that we don't have our cells quickly filling up with totally misfolded dysfunctional proteins is that this is part of a larger system. And here's some of the, there's a kind of schematic map of some of the other ways that you see you know, when you get to misfolded states, there are other things that happen and other processes that go on. So as you keep running things around this system, you, broadly speaking, get um, a sufficient dominance of what are called native proteins as the, the intended, I mean, the, the, the functional outcome predominating sufficiently to keep the cell functional. So, so the actual maintenance of a whole functional proteome that's a set of of, of proteins in the cell is 
a dispersed process around substantial parts of the cell. And uh, again, locating the thing that has the capacity seems to me, again, it's another example um, of, of something that that's, is, is very hard to locate, but also the individual and total um, outcomes of which are not deterministic. They're, I think, clearly more stochastic. Okay, I think a final point I want to make, dependence of powers on context. And here I'm going to carry on with, with talk about proteins and start off with one of my favorite terms in this field, moonlighting proteins. So back in the days of coded Lego, uh, bits of code that produce the right bit of Lego and they stuck together in the right kinds of ways, um, people thought that, lots of people thought, that a protein had a function determined by its structure. And once you found out you know, what the structure was, how that served a function, you basically solved that protein. And then people found, to their annoyance, I suppose, or not to the people who found it, but to the annoyance of some of the other people, that proteins were doing stuff in their spare time. They were doing other jobs. And this, so, so this came to be known as moonlighting proteins. I think it's a wonderful term. I mean, it just has such a history of uh, assumptions in it. And this is just a picture of... Uh, so basically the idea is you, the protein evolves for a certain function, but in many it can turn out to be either the, the living process can put it to other uses. I mean, this, this is actually a picture with two different active sites that do different things. So just producing the structure that has one active site produces other areas of the, of the object that can do other things. And totally different functions. And in fact, there are proteins with you know, up to a dozen or so different known functions. Not really very surprising you evolve these complex things. You know, you're actually looking for what you can do with them. And even, I guess, in Lego, you know, if you're an ingenious Lego builder, you find different uses for different Lego bits. Proteins also actually don't have, as people once thought, determinate shapes. Um, at least Probably 60% of them, I think, is the figure I've seen. And, of course, that's an at least, and sometimes these things go up. But a large proportion of proteins have areas that are uh, intrinsically disordered, which means that they don't actually adopt a particular shape at all. They exist in a suite of different conformations as they flex around these, these flexible bits. And, of course, this is a natural way of of providing a much more flexible object that can do lots of different things. Now questions. So here's the, the philosophical question. So these things have lots of different powers, right? They can do this, that, the other. Do they have a specific set of powers? Is it an objective fact that they have a specific set of powers which under some circumstance will be exercised. Now, my view is that that is at least a very difficult way to think about this because you know, there are indefinitely many different organisms that could find themselves with this molecule in them, a very complex molecule which could do lots of different things, particularly if it's kind of fairly disordered. 
Um, and it seems to me that there's no reason to think there's any limit to the number of potential potential powers that it might have in as yet non-existent organisms. But it seems to me that powers are something that come into being in relation to a context that exists. So maybe this is a partner power, I don't know. <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps there's something that we um, will agree strongly on here. So at any rate, um, the powers are not inherently in the individual things. They require context. And I guess the only thing is that the contexts, I think, are going to be rather diverse and complex. And they might even be polyadic, but that's <laughs> something else. So finally, I got to the end. I'm sorry. It. Um, so, my big, big conclusion, life is very complex. That's why <laughs> end up with a really deep thought. Um, powers and processes, I think, do provide a, a good set of categories to try and analyzing, analyze living systems, but I don't think there is a unique such analysis. I think there are many different ways of doing it, depending on why you're doing it. The different processes, as I said, can be distinguished with different purposes and the powers that these processes have. So I don't think they're unreal, I think they really are there, but um, so this is what I sometimes call promiscuous individualism, which is um, modeled on my sort of pluralist view of kinds, the pluralist view of individuals. Uh, and the powers that those real, but only partially determined individuals can have will depend on the wider context in which they're embedded. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you.